If you have a copy of God's Word, either printed with you or on your uh, cellular device or uh, laptop or uh, smart device or whatever, power it up. We're in the book of Philemon this morning, near the end of your New Testament. If you're not sure where Philemon is, find the book of Revelation and hang a left and come back just a little bit. Philemon is a very short letter, only one chapter in length. It's the shortest of all Paul's letters weighing in at a meager 350 words in the Greek New Testament. And so it's easy to miss, easy to overlook, and it's certainly been easy to overlook in much of our preaching over the last many decades and years because we sometimes equate brevity with a lack of importance. Not so. This is one of the most important letters in the Bible with respect to human relationships, and we're calling this series Living the Gospel because Philemon is all about how to live with gospel-centered, healthy relationships, and very few things this side of heaven are more important than that. Uh, Speaking of relationships, I was away for a few days last week on a planning retreat. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, got to visit with my mama. Can I have an amen this morning? Mama was wonderful, and uh, you know, my mother last year celebrated uh, 50 years living in the same house. Uh, And so we moved into that house when I was four years old. You can do the math. And my brother, my mother was pregnant with my middle brother, Jason, when we moved in there in 1967. And uh, so it's a wonderfully nostalgic thing. She built right across the street from my grandmother, and that house is still there, now renovated and lived in by a young up-and-coming family with little kids. And it reminds us of what our life was like living across the road from our grandmother. And you know, one of the things I noticed, and it's been that way for a few years, but I'm always reminded when I go home that my mother's very security-minded. She got like four locks on the door. And so, man, we get bolted in. If a fire breaks out, I'm floating right to glory, right from that house. Because ain't nobody going to get out the house before we're all consumed. Uh, But it used to not be that way back when I was a boy. Uh, In fact, uh, we lived in a time, and many of you may remember this, where everybody had a screen door or a storm door. And you don't see that much anymore. It's kind of hot for that here most of the time. But back in the day, you know, we had those screen doors so that the door could stay open all day long and most of the night. You only closed the door when you went to bed. And even then, you didn't worry about locking it. And that's the thing about storm doors. It allowed us to keep the door open. My grandmother and my mother to this day are huge on hospitality. If you came over, it didn't matter what time it was. You were going to eat something, and if you were hungry or not hungry, it didn't matter. Something was going to get shoved under your nose. And so they were huge on hospitality and welcoming people. And we had friends and family members and neighbors and out-of-town guests just coming and going all the time. That's the thing about a screen door. The only thing a screen door is designed to do is keep stuff out, namely bugs, right? But the big door was always open because people were always welcome. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning on the subject of living your life with an open door. Because as important as the letter to Philemon is, when it comes to things like reconciliation, and that's the major theme, being reconciled with one another as we're reconciled to God, as big as Philemon is on things like forgiveness, and I know Dustin preached a roundhouse kick of a message on forgiveness here last Sunday, that's certainly a major theme of Philemon. Another major theme is obedience, doing the right thing according 
to the teaching of Jesus Christ. When it comes to mending broken fences and to living in healthy relationships. But you know, another major theme, and particularly in the passage that we'll examine this morning uh, in the letter to the Philemon is the theme of hospitality, which is very relationship-oriented, as you well know. And you'll pick that up as we uh, look at our text this morning here, beginning in verse 17. Philemon and the 17th verse as we conclude our series this morning. Everybody with me, would you say amen? The Apostle Paul concludes by saying, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, Onesimus, the slave who's run away, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, so refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, enduring word of the living God. And let all who agree with it say amen this morning. Now, if by chance uh, you're coming in on the tail end of this study in the letter to Philemon, uh, just be reminded that this book has three important characters. Paul, who's writing it, Philemon, who's receiving it, and Onesimus, about whom the letter really is all about. Philemon, of course, is a well-to-do leader there in the church at Colossa, and he had a slave, probably one of many, and his slave's name was Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away. He fled. He got tired of living under the authority of a master, and for whatever reason, he'd had his fill, and so he runs away, helping himself, apparently, to some of Philemon's cash in the process. And presumably, he escapes all the way to Rome, where he is connected, I believe, by divine appointment with the Apostle Paul, who is there uh, in prison under house arrest. Paul builds a relationship with him, leads him to faith in Jesus Christ, and then begins the process of discipling him, teaching him the ways of Jesus Christ, so much so that Paul says, this young man has become my heart. He's become my spiritual flesh and blood. And boy, he's soaking up gospel like a sponge. He's assisting me. In fact, Paul says he's become very useful to me, which is what the name Onesimus actually means. And he had. He was actually, I think, functioning as a deacon to the apostle Paul. Serving Paul, that's what the word means, diakonos, to serve. And that's the word that Paul uses when he describes how uh, Onesimus is functioning. He's doing all kinds of ministry work in support of Paul who is limited in his comings and goings because he's under arrest. But Paul decides to break up the good thing because he knows that there's a broken relationship going on. You can't have that in the kingdom of Christ. Not and have the glory of Christ shine through the church in a way that affects and infects the community so that they'll see there's something different about that community that I don't have 
in my everyday life. There's something that desperately is attractive about the way they get along with one another. So Paul decides to break up this good thing he's got going in Rome, and he's going to send Onesimus back, which is kind of a risky thing for him to do because uh, Onesimus could be captured by runaway slave hunters who are looking for bounty, uh, or he could be rejected once he got back and the master could, who had great authority could have put him to death if he had wanted to or uh, harmed him in some way. And so it's a risky thing. But Paul says, no, it's the right thing to do. I'm going to send you back no longer as a slave, but as the man's brother. And I'm confident that by the Spirit of God, Philemon will receive you back and do the right thing. He wants him to reconcile with the runaway slave in the same way that he had been reconciled to God. Paul knew this was going to send shockwaves through the church because this is not what they were accustomed to. Slaves were just slaves, right? They didn't really belong. They really weren't human beings in a lot of people's definition. And so this was important for Paul to do. It was important for Onesimus. It was important for Philemon to respond and react in the right way because that would demonstrate, here's the deal, the gospel is more than just words. It's more than just what's printed on a piece of paper. The gospel really does change everything about the way I think and the way I live, even how I respond to hurt and to brokenness and to pain that works its way into just about every relationship at one time or another. So as Paul brings this letter to a conclusion, he's going to emphasize two very important things, both of which revolve around this larger theme of Christian hospitality. The first thing we notice from his final remarks is that we're obligated to one another in the body of Christ. We have an obligation to others. An obligation to do what? We have an obligation to forgive. We have an obligation to heal. We have the obligation to reconcile, to take the initiative to restore what's been broken. Paul says in his first chapter to the letter to the Romans, I am under obligation, both to Jews and to Greeks. I'm even obligated to barbarians, Paul says. I have a responsibility toward my fellow man to love them as Christ has loved me. Paul tells Philemon here in verse 17, so after having said everything I've said in these first 16 verses, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, if you've been reading along with us, you know that up to this point, Paul's been gently encouraging Philemon to receive him back, to make his own decision out of grace to receive that slave back. Paul was an apostle, and he could have said, let me tell you something, I'm the ruling authority going on right here, and I'm telling you this is what I'm, you're going to do, and if you don't do it, I'm coming to you with a rod in my hand. But he, he's resisting doing that. He never identifies himself as an apostle, only as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he wants the decision to be Philemon's, not something that he's coerced to do not of necessity or under compulsion, kind of like we're to give, right? God doesn't want us to give because we're bound to give and we're afraid a lightning bolt's going to hit us. He wants us to give because we love God as cheerful givers. And so Paul's not bullying him up to this point. He could have pulled rank, but he doesn't do that because he wants Philemon to choose to live in grace. But now 
He kind of turns the heat up, not much, but just a little bit, just in case Philemon's not getting the hint. Y'all parents know what I mean? You try to get your kids to make the right call, but just in case, you have to turn it up just a little bit. He makes clear what he wants Philemon to do. Receive him as you would receive me. Now, let me just say, I think that's the key statement of the whole letter. That's the, that's the thesis statement of the whole letter. The whole letter revolves around that, right? We've been building and building and building to a point. What does Paul really want him to do? Here it is right here. Receive him as you would receive me. And that's Paul's way of reminding Philemon that he's obligated to take the man back. He has an obligation not only to Onesimus as a brother in Christ, because the man is now saved, but he has an obligation to Paul himself. He was obligated to Paul, one, because Paul had led him to Christ. Paul had thought enough of Philemon, the well-to-do businessman from Colossae, who'd now become a church leader. He thought enough to invest in him, disciple him, and help him get to a point where now he's leading a church that's meeting there in his home. And so Paul reminds him, When you receive Onesimus back, you're showing the hospitality of Jesus who's welcomed you back into his family as the father welcomed the runaway son, the prodigal son. The most popular story that Jesus ever told is about a runaway that the father consistently looked come home. And he says, this is the thing. You're acting like the Lord by showing yourself obligated to receive him back. You ought to do it just for him, but if that's not forceful enough motivation, then do it for me. Do it for me. Now, it sounds kind of like Paul's laying a guilt trip on him here, doesn't it? And I really don't think that's what he's intentionally doing, though that may have been an unintended consequence. But can I just say this morning, there are times in our walk that we need somebody to speak truth and lay a little guilt trip on us. I know there are times in my life where I've needed somebody to help me understand that I was in the wrong and help me to feel broken about it. It's like the old preacher said, I, you know, I've heard him say it many times, I don't mean to make you feel guilty, but I'm not beyond it. And I'm not either. I remember an episode of the Andy Griffith Show. Any Andy fans in the house this morning? Amen. You remember that episode where Opie was uh, in a race at school and he lost the race? And he became a sore loser. And then he quit. And he didn't want to have anything to do with his friends. And Andy's trying to get him out of that unsportsmanlike conduct. And there's a great line there where they're up in the room. And, you know, most of the time it's, 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 it's funny and it's light. But, man, there are times where they put Andy in the dark shade. Andy plays the heavy. He does that when Opie kills the bird, by the way, too, if you remember that. But here's another one. Andy goes into that dark shade. And here's the line. He said, if that's the way you want to be, that's fine. But just so that we understand one another, I'm disappointed in you. And it's the only time, and whenever I watch Andy Griffith, I just break down in tears. I'm lost at that point. I'm disappointed in you. And you got a bit of that here with Paul. Here's the thing. 
You know what I've done for you. You know how I've invested in you, and I'm sending him back to you, and I want you to receive him back of your own accord. If you don't, do it for me. But just know that if you won't do it for him and you won't do it for me, I'm going to be disappointed in you because you're not going to look anything like the Lord I thought you possessed. Now, when Paul uses the word receive here, it's one of the most important words in the Bible. It's used all over the Bible any countless number of times. It's a word that means to receive or to welcome <clears throat> or to take to one side is what it literally means. Paralambano, to call alongside or to, to take or to receive or to hug to one side. It's the same word Jesus used in the Gospel of John, the text I'm going to use next week at Easter, where Jesus is teaching his disciples the night before he dies, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you what? Unto myself. That's the same word, and that's what he's saying. Receive the man unto yourself. Don't just say, well, come in and sit over there in the back. No, 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 take him to your side. Take him to your side in the same way that our Lord is going to take us unto himself one day when he comes again. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This is Christ-like admonition is what it is. And that didn't happen, that kind of reception. Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to do because it's what I'm going to do. But Jesus determines that that's what he's going to do because when Jesus came the first time, that's not what happened to him. Nobody took the baby Christ to their side. He wasn't received. He wasn't taken in. No one was willing to do that. There was no open door in Bethlehem for the Mary and Joseph family. No room for Jesus at the Hilton Garden, Bethlehem. There was no room at the Marriott King David. There was no room at the Sheraton at the Shepherd's Field. I'm telling you, even the Motel 6 cut the light off on the Lord. The Bible says it in John 1. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own people would not take Christ to their side but to as many as did receive him. See, there's that word again. It's all over the place. To those who take Christ unto themselves, to them he gives the right to become children of God, even to them. But make no mistake, Jesus Christ knew the pain of the stiff arm. He'd experienced it. He knew what it was like to be isolated and ostracized. The Bible forecasted that in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. And that's why he makes the gift of hospitality such an important dynamic of living for him. Because he didn't get much of it. When he, the very son of God, came and lived on the earth. Hospitality is a big deal to Jesus. So much so, I mean, have you noticed it? That when Jesus taught in his ministry about hospitality and our relationship to others, he fashions it really as a spiritual virtue that he himself takes very personally. You remember not long before his death, Jesus would paint a picture of the final judgment. You remember the parable in Matthew 25 where Jesus is telling the story about how the Lord at the end of time would separate the sheep from the goats, amen. 
And he would take the sheep and place them on the right and take the goats and place them on the left. And then the Bible says that Jesus there at the judgment are going to say, is going to say to his sheep, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. You received me. It's the same word. I was a stranger. I came knocking at your door and you opened it up and you took me inside and you invited me in and you called me alongside and you gave me a welcome handshake and a welcome embrace. And it's interesting that when the Lord says this at the final judgment, you have to remember Jesus is painting a picture of what's going to happen in the future to all of us who know him. And the righteous, when Jesus is saying this, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I mean, when Jesus says that to me, when I'm standing face to face with him, I'd be confused too because I'm looking around saying, I don't recall ever giving Jesus anything to eat. I, in fact, Lord, here's the thing. We're a little confused because this is like the first time we're ever laying eyes on you. When did we give you food and when did we give you drink and when did you knock on our door and we took you in? You remember what Jesus said, don't you? He said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it, say it out loud, Unto me. Now, do you see what I mean when I say when it comes to hospitality that we show to others? Christ takes it personally. So when you give a cup of cold water to someone, you're giving it in Jesus' name and you're giving it to Christ. When you turn away from somebody in need who comes to you, you're turning away Christ. So he takes it personally. So the stakes are high. No question about it. And Paul knows the potential consequences of Philemon's decision. Everybody's want to know, what's he going to do? The church is wondering. They're, they're listening to this letter, letter presumably being read to the whole church. And when Paul says this, receive him as you received me, everybody's going to Philemon. What's he going to do? And Paul wants him to know, not only am I watching, Christ is watching. Consequences are high. And by the way, y'all still with me? Say amen. This is part of the reason Paul steps, watch this, part of the reason Paul steps into the money issue here. Now, I've been coaching you. Now, I'm going to preach it because there is a money issue on the table. That man stole some money, and Philemon is probably, that's the one thing he's not getting out of his mind. You don't know some money has that way of doing those kind of things to us. Paul brings up the money issue because he knows the power of money. He knows the idolatrous effects of money on most people, even within the body of Christ. And he didn't want Philemon's spiritual sensibilities to be overridden by his excess love of money. Money has a swaying effect on much of our decision-making. The love of money can cause people to compromise a lot of biblical truth, which is why there's so much in the Bible about not laying up treasures on earth and being aware of the love of money because it pierces 
a person through with many a sorrow if that becomes the end all of life. And it's also why Paul is very quick to say here in verse 18, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my what? In other words, put it on my tab. And let me remind you again not to lay a guilt trip on you. You owe me everything in your spiritual life. But if you're not big enough to do this of your own accord and money is blocking your sensibilities spiritually, then put it on my account. That reminds you all of the Good Samaritan. I got a message I'm working up in a a few weeks on the Good Samaritan as well. And that's what he did. I mean, that Samaritan took that man who was beat to death, left in the ditch for dead, bandaged his wounds. By the way, that guy didn't have a first aid kit in the saddlebags. He had to rip his own clothes to make bandages for that guy. And then he manages to cart him all the way into Jericho, and he does find the Hilton Jericho. And he's got to go because he's got business, but he leaves him there, gives instructions, tend to him, care for his wounds, and leaves him money, his own money. Didn't even know the guy. And he said, by the way, if there's not enough, let me give you my platinum MasterCard. If you run out and need more before I can get back, just says the same thing Paul does here. Charge it to my account. So Paul reminds Philemon, listen, you're under obligation. You're under obligation spiritually to him. You're under obligation spiritually to me, money or no money. And it's interesting here in verse 19, the very next verse, to force the point, Paul snatches the pen out of the secretary's hand His custom was to dictate his letters, not to write them personally. But yet, notice what he does here. To make the point, he snatches the pen out of the secretary's hand, and he says in verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Insert, if money is that important, I will repay it. Paul. So don't forget, hospitality is going to cost you something. It'll cost you time, might cost you food, might cost you dirty clothes, and it might cost you money. But here's the thing. You choose to obey and let God worry about the money part. Let me say that again because I thought that would get a louder amen. You choose to obey and you let God worry about the money part. That's right. I remember when I was a student in university, my roommate one day, I'd known my college roommate since we were five years old. We went through school from kindergarten together, dear friend still is to this day. And he had asked me to walk uh, with him one day. He'd gotten a check from his dad, a blank check, and uh, said, won't you walk with me? I need to go to the financial office here at the school, and I need to, dad said to find out what my balance was and to pay the tuition, and I didn't want to go with him because I owed my tuition. (laughs) I still remember what it was, $4,400. Doesn't sound like a ton today. This was 1983, brothers and sisters, $4,400. I had a scholarship paid for half of everything at Vanderbilt University, but even half at Vandy is a boatload of money, and my mother didn't know how she was going to pay it, and things were tight. Back in the time, interest rates were sky high. 
Unemployment was sky high. She was in the real estate business. The weather had been bad. The market was terrible. And so ours was left undone. So I didn't want to go to the financial aid office, but he kept pushing me. And so finally, when he bargained to buy me a sandwich and a cup of coffee, I went with him. And so I'm just standing there kind of shuffling my feet. He's at the window talking to the teller. And he said, you know, I'm Joe, and I need you to find out what my balance is. And she does. And then he gave a thumb this way, and he said, what about him? What's his balance? I have your name. And I was so caught off guard. I, just as a knee jerk, I began to protest. What are you talking about? And he looked at the teller and said, James Locke, find out what his balance is. And I, I said, no, you're not going to do that. And he looked at me, pointed a finger at me, and he said, no. Dad told me to pay yours too. And to my dying day, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it. The burden that was lifted from our family on that one day, we'd have other worries in the future, but for the next four months, we didn't have any. And I could just focus on what I needed to focus on. That's Christian hospitality. And when you receive it, it encourages you in a way very few other things do. Paul couches it in terms of refreshment here. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And don't you all know my heart was refreshed in that moment? Revived is another word for refreshment. This is not the first time Paul has used that word refresh. Earlier in our study, we saw how Paul had commended Philemon. You have refreshed the hearts of the saints, of the church. Everybody has been a beneficiary of your good stewardship of hospitality. But now Paul makes it personal. Now I want you to refresh my heart. And he's very specific. So this is not just a random act of kindness in the kingdom. Paul is couching what Philemon is to do in terms of a Christian obligation to his now brother in Christ. Y'all with me so far? Say amen. But that kind of obligation always comes with another thing, and that is accountability. And that's the second thing we need to see here. We're obligated to others, but at the same time, we need to be accountable to others. Accountable to others. In this case, Philemon is accountable to Paul and to Christ for that matter. He's accountable to Paul for his hospitality to somebody who's now a Christian brother. And in a roundabout kind of way, what Paul does is issue a gentle reminder to his friend, and here's the deal. I've reminded you all that I can remind you of spiritually in terms of what the right thing to do is, but now let me remind you of something else. I'm going to be watching what you do. And in this case, I'm going to be watching up close and personal because I'm coming to your house to stay for about six months. Maybe not that long. I just made that up. 
but he was coming to stay. That's what he says in verse 22. At the same time, Paul is anticipating getting out of prison, which he would. And he says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. He'd never been to Colossa. Paul did not found the church at Colossa. Probably Epaphras did. But Paul had never been. He says, I'm coming. I want to find out what's going on there. But more to the point, I'm going to find out what, you do, what you've done with this brother in Christ that I've sent back. So prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Now let me ask you, do you think that statement had any bearing on Philemon's decision? You better believe it did. And Paul does that on purpose because he knows. It's like President Reagan you remember President Reagan and his dealings with the Russians on arms limitation, nuclear deterrence, and all of that? <clears throat> he wanted to have all these verification procedures, and he got accused one time of not trusting the Russians, and he said, oh, I believe in the doctrine of trust but verify. Trust but verify. That was the Reagan doctrine toward the Russians. That's what you got going on right here. Paul's saying, I trust your brother, but I'm going to verify what you're doing. You know why he does that? Because he knows that every single one of us need accountability to grow in the kingdom of Christ. Where there is no accountability, and there are many people within the sound of my voice this morning that are not accountable to anybody, and you're not growing in faith. And that's a principal reason why. Accountability is critical because you'll never grow very far. You'll never grow very deep in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ apart from it. Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says this, accountability breeds responsibility. And that's one of the reasons that Paul says, I'm coming to see you because he knows that a measure of accountability will help Philemon in the area of spiritual responsibility. See, it's really easy to believe the right things, but it's hard to do the right things consistently. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So that if you're not accountable, you'll have this tendency to be all over the map in your Christian walk with Jesus. Strong and then weak. High and then low. Engaged and then distant. And that's because there's no accountability. And this is why you need a godly spouse. Somebody say amen. Kids, this is why you need godly parents. It's why every single one of us need the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does God command us not to give up assembling ourselves together? Because the church is God's built-in accountability system. Beware of anybody who says, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Oh, yes, you do. And you're just shaking your fist at God and totally keeping the Bible closed to make a statement like that. No, the church is built in accountability, and a small group is even greater built in accountability, right? So it's why we need a wonderful small group. It's why we need Christian friends who will poke us and prod us. It's often been said, friends don't let friends drive drunk, and friends don't let fellow Christian friends do whatever they want to do either particularly when it's unhealthy. You'll never live consistently for Christ without being accountable to others. And so that's the takeaway for today. We have an obligation to others. And we have a need to be accountable 
to others. And when we do, we honor God and we bless the name of Christ who takes our relationships and our response to them very personally. As you have done to them, you have done to me. I think it's interesting that 50 years after this letter was written, and I think Dustin mentioned this last week, the church father Ignatius who was the bishop of Antioch, makes reference to the bishop of Ephesus. And you know what his name was? Onesimus. That's right. That's a common name. It may not have been the same Onesimus. It was like John or James or whatever. But I just find it hard to believe that that's not our guy, don't you? (laughs) Which, if it's true, well, these days we'll know in heaven. But if it's true, and I believe it is, It means that Philemon did the right thing and he welcomed the man back, no longer as a slave, but as a brother, which is what Christ has done for us. He's welcomed an alien, renegade, runaway sinner. Through the blood of Christ, he's welcomed us back unto himself where we shall live and reign with him for all eternity. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And it surely is good news. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.